Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And we are reviewing the Season 3 finale, Adversary. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I think it's... Uh, I think I think it's definitely one of Deep Space Nine's better episodes, and I would say one of the better uh, season finales in the franchise. So we'll we'll get to this at the end, but uh, like Jemhadar, I appreciate the lack of sort of split second cliffhanger. I like setting things up for next season without sort of tying themselves to resolving a crisis in the first episode. Hmm. I think I might like this a little less than the Jemhadar. Um... But, you know, there are certainly good things about it. Uh, you know, we'll get to that. Um, I guess we can talk about Season 3 as a whole at the end of the review, too. Um, so, yeah, let's just go ahead and get started. Are you ready, Kevin? I am queued up. Okay, well, get ready at home, and we will press play together in 3, 2, 1, press play. So one thing that annoys me a little bit about this episode is not the fact that they're making a big deal out of him being promoted, because, you know, that's a nice character thing, but the fact that this is the first of two uh, act break intros in which it's like the same joke, you know? And, I, you know, I guess I'll mention it when we get to the second version of this joke. Um it's basically when he starts his captain's lot. You know, it's like Cisco doesn't know what to say, and his son is involved in the joke, and then he's a captain. You know, that aside, how do you feel about captainship and all that stuff? Um, on the one hand, I think it. I mean, it makes sense for the character. It's you know, career growth. It's an important post. Um, I. Like in terms of like an internal realistic universe, it almost doesn't make sense that, especially after the discovery of the wormhole, there wasn't like an admiral put there with the fleet of starships. But that's neither here nor there. Um, it feels a little stagey from a from a real world perspective, just because um, you know TNG was off the air, they had their movie, so now it's like, well, now Cisco can be a captain because he's not competing. It was, you know what I mean? Do you really think that's what was behind it? Um, I think that was why they made him a commander in the first place. I think they've said that explicitly. That uh... Well, there have been other Starbase commanders. There was Commander Quinteros, right? Yeah, yeah. But then, I... of course, in TOS, there were admirals in charge of Starbases. So, Commodores, you know... yeah, yeah. So oh, it's Commodores, all... that's right. Well, and, like, the Defiance, I think, is the other big one, where it's like once TNG's off the air, now they can have a starship because it's not <clears throat> somehow competing. Yeah. Well, so, you know, this is giving us the setup. Um, we have our ambassador here who's discussing the coup d'etat on the Zenkethi homeworld. Now, if memory serves, the Zenkethi are the sort of feline looking aliens from the animated series. I don't actually, I don't think so. Um, I think, I, I don't think the Zenkethi had been, the Zenkethi had been mentioned before this episode. Let me. Look up. No, the... I'm looking right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, Robert I... Hewitt Wolf said that he thought he had named Zenkethi by combining the name Kazinti, okay, from the slaver weapon with uh, Zenkethi. 
so, all right. I knew there was some connection, but yeah. <laughs> it really, you know, in the scheme of things, it's not going to amount to much of a difference uh, for reasons that will become clear over the next 45 minutes. Um, I will say uh, I like Lawrence Pressman as the ambassador he played uh, to Kenny Gamore in uh, Second Skin. He's a good actor. I, I like him a lot. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. He looks a lot different in the regular human ghetto. Yeah. And we have another appearance from uh, Michael Eddington, who both of us have expressed fondness for. And we're getting a better look at the uh, Defiant Engineering set, which will play a big role later on. Yeah. This isn't a great set. It's not a bad set. I mean, it makes sense that it's a stripped-down utilitarian version of an engine room, given the nature of the ship. It, it's just not as cool a set as either, you know, TNG or Voyager. Well, it's a small room, you know. Um, I mean, I think the warp core looks cool and all, and I like that doodad that he's pulling out yeah, of Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do kind of wonder why he's the only guy there. You know, like, is this designed to be a one-man engineering? Like... There's a lot of consoles in there. It seems like you could have two or three guys on duty at any given time. Yeah. And I have to say, as teasers go, O'Brien hearing a noise and going back to his work, hmm, getting jumpy in your old age. I, how do I, Did this tease you? Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, for some reason, I thought it got farther into the scene, like he got into the Jeffrey's tube or something. That is a pretty low-key teaser <laughs> break. Well, I mean, it's like it's clear that we're supposed to feel a little bit uneasy, especially with the camera angle at the end. But yeah, it doesn't tease much. You know, heck, they could have just stopped at the at the party. You know. Yeah, I, I will say. The thing like the mission you know and like everybody leaving the party or something like that would have been a, a more clean act break or something yeah um i don't mind the zen the introduction of the zen kathy because they do at least follow up on it a little in uh paradise lost and Homefront. uh they you know mentioned that uh admiral what's his face layton is was cisco's commander during the zen kathy war so that's fine but I do, I, it's grown a little thin because TNG was really bad at this, where, like, once or twice a season we introduced a new species with whom the Federation has had a border conflict, and the and the conflict of the episode is to prevent the reignition of that border conflict. And it's like, how many damn, I understand it's three-dimensional space, but how many damn borders can you have? Well, that that's one of my problems. It's not a huge problem, but there's a line of dialogue coming up. Um... It might be in this first captain's log uh, that I just really don't like. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll wait. We'll get there. Um, you know, so I, I agree. I like Lawrence Pressman a lot. I like Kenneth Marshall a lot. So, you know, whatever flaws there are, I liked the scene. You know, yeah. I, I liked that they did the, you know, hip, hip, hooray, jolly good fellow. Like, it reminds me of Generations, and if you do that, you're going to get on my good side. Yeah. Although this might have been prior generations. So, okay, so here's... It's just the second version of the same joke that we saw six minutes ago. 
you know? Do you see what I'm saying, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's like the cute way of saying he's a captain, but we just saw this scene. Right, and a cute way to say he's captain, and like the little fake-out of this is his last commander's log, and it's like, eh, yeah, it's... It's just repetitive. So this is a nice scene. I like this scene a lot. Uh, yeah. This, uh... Shuttle... Not Sorry, not shuttle. Uh, turbo, la turbo lift is a really odd set. Um, really claustrophobic. Yeah. It's like a service elevator. Though I, I do really like the uh, schematic of the... Like, of, like, where the turbo lift goes. Sure. In the background. I j it's just, um... It doesn't even read as turbo lift, you know? It just reads as closet. Yeah. So I, I like this scene. Um, I like the banter. You know, I have to say, though, uh, ever since that Mirror episode, whenever Cisco and Dax are, you know, yeah. in the same room bantering, I'm always just like, dude, you just banged her, you know? Like, do you have no weirdness and nothing strange coming off of that? It's like, I mean, maybe Cisco is capable of very flippant, uh, unconnected sexual liaisons, but he didn't strike me as that kind of guy, you know? He struck me as the kind of guy who would mean it. Um, so whatever. I did like I, I like that Cisco's idea of a of a fun date for Cassidy as a hollow as a hollow recording of the 1964 World Series. That's a, it, it's a nice touch and it's uh, it it read well. Sure, absolutely. No, it's a nice line. You know, we didn't discuss this in our review for Explorers. What do you think of Cisco's goatee? Oh, I don't mind it at all. Um, I think it gives him a little character. Uh, I, I'm. I'm I won't say I'm a fan, but I'm a liker. It's funny. Every time I watch Deep Space Nine, uh, I'll, I usually watch it largely in order, if not every episode. So I get used to Cisco one way and then have to get used to the second way again. Then if I rewatch it, I have to go back to getting used to the first way. Uh, speaking of changes that the producers eventually allowed him to do, um, Avery Brooks uh, shaves his head and wears goatee as a matter of course, and they... Uh, made him not do that because they didn't want him to look too much like his character Hawk from uh, Spencer for Hire. Yeah, see, that's a show I never watched, so I, I've never had any associations. Um, it's not as drastic a change as the uniforms, you know? Yeah. So whatever. Uh, I will say, you know, the stirrup pants don't look very good when people are sitting cross-legged. <laughs> I wonder if they tape them under the shoes so that they don't have any wardrobe malfunctions. So, uh, again, with the... Actually, know. I remember uh, Roxanne Dawson doing a behind-the-scenes thing for Voyager. Apparently, there there's like a Velcro strap sewed into the cuff of the pant that you slip your foot through to keep the line of the pant clean, and it's incredibly uncomfortable in the boots after long hours of filming, according to <laughs> the actress. Okay. So we're getting this sort of very slow burn on the, you know, something is amiss, O'Brien feels uneasy plot. Uh, you know, we've got Dr. Bashir doing engineering extension stuff. Uh, this, this, this did always come off like a little obvious, you know? It's like, 
you know, it just reads like clearly either Bash- something's wrong with Bashir or it's not Bashir. Like it's a little too telegraphy. Yeah, um, I think they could have done something better with it. Just like have O'Brien be annoyed with him in the way that they have, you know, yeah. their sort of yeah. uh, relationship. Um, so that both the viewer and O'Brien wouldn't think anything. You know, they're telegraphing it with the music and with the, the pacing. Yeah, know? yeah. So this might be the first appearance of the Defiant Coffee Mug. I always wanted one of those. So this is an odd scene. You know, I, I like that Cisco is sort of assigning uh, Eddington to whisk the admiral, sorry, the ambassador away if things get hairy. But really, like the point of the scene seems to be the dialogue, uh, you know, between the two. And I feel like the dialogue doesn't really serve this episode as much as it serves future Eddington stories, which I'm okay with. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, when you do that, scenes stick out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I the bit about the ambassador felt very original series to me because it's it, it's a it's a page out of TOS to have the you know visiting Federation dignitary who might be butting in. Uh, but I like this scene for what it is. Yeah, what, the only thing that ever bothered me about Eddington was uh, much like the reveal of the final five Cylons, it felt like they drew his name out of a hat for the Maquis episode. Yeah, I mean, he seems like a dedicated career. Well, I mean, like, maybe you could think of this as a motivation. Like, somehow he got slapped in operations and security, and this is frustrating to his desire to be a captain. I I really wonder about his reasoning, though. Does everybody who joins up want to become a captain? Like, what did Barkley want to become? Yeah. You know? What, what does Dr. Crusher want to become? Seriously, right? Yeah, and I it's think... Like there that... are thousands of people in this organization, and there are only, let's say, 100 captains, you know, out of 20,000, right? Out of 30,000, right. 50,000. Uh, not everybody can want to be... You know, that's too many chiefs, not enough Indians, you know? It's like, these are, these are careers, you know? And I know from my own relatives and friends in the military that... They don't go in thinking, I want to be a five-star general. You know, I'm going to be the next Colin Powell. They're like, no, I want to have a 20- or 30-year career with a good pension. Right. Um, yeah, all they needed was some episode, was some more exposition to explain the break. You know, something that happened to him or someone he cared about. Like, just something. But, um, okay, here... the. From this point forward, where the episode really starts starts to ramp up the tension, I really like it. I like the audio-only um, distress call. The episode has a very claustrophobic feel because we get very few shots, even you know, external shots of the Defiant from for the rest of the episode. Um, everything's shot very tightly. It's very crowded. It's very cramped, and I like that. It really it from whatever issues we had with the kind of teaser trailer bit. I think this. Um, actually works really well. No, I agree um, that the general tone is pretty enjoyable. Um, And this general tone is one that uh, Deep Space Nine has finally sort of hit on, you know, telling a taut, you know, sort of tense 
story, you know. Yeah. And it's it's not a tone that was in a lot of uh, TNG, let's say, and certainly not in a lot of Deep Space Nine uh, up until season three. Um, you know, the introduction of the Maquis really helped add some tension, and you know, the final reveal of the Dominion helped add some of that tension. You know, so generally it was it was pretty positive, and I yeah. agree that this episode's a good good version of it so here we have a system parasite this always made me think of the uh thingy from emergence in uh tng yeah that's the technical term the the thingy yeah you know the doodad <laughs> no whatchamacallit it's in the manual i imagine that the <laughs> the cast dislike defiant episodes because uh there's a lot of jeffrey's tube work in these episodes it seems yeah. now kevin tell me what these doodads have to do with the overall plot well i, I it's what allows the founder to take control of the ship right Okay, What's so that yeah, so that they can force it into Zenkethi space. Right. All right. Well, let's just talk about the Zenkethi. Right. I agree with the general criticism. It's like here's another border war that we've never heard about and will scarcely hear about again. Uh, there's 47 people on board, by the way. Um, and it's just yeah, like make it. What what are their names? Uh. The Tellarian, Terrellian, Terrellian. Well, no, not not them. Although that that would be fine. Uh, I'm trying to think. They wear the helmets. Um, the Breen. Yeah, make it the Breen or something like something we've at least heard about. Right. Or um, show us show us the Zenkef. Well, yeah. So that that's the problem in episode is that it's a huge MacGuffin. You know, it's it's like it drives the plot, but we never see yeah, any actually, of it. Actually. Um, the the recent series of books, the Typhon Pact, in which the Zenkethi play a role, does an amazing job, and it, it almost like they almost went into overdrive to describe these people. They're genetically engineered super people, basically, who um, because of their ability to manipulate gravity at a very fine level, use all four all surfaces of a room as if any one surface were the floor. And it, it was just a really cool way. Like, the way it was described was very cool, and I'm like, shit, I would have loved to have seen that in this episode. Well, I mean, there's clearly something that a novelist is like, they could never do this. Right. Um, uh, no, but, you know, my other, you know, big problem with it is that Cisco delivers this line in which he's like, you know, I haven't been here in a while, and it only brings back bad memories. It's like... When did these memories take place? You know, like I thought I had a pretty decent handle on Cisco's, uh, you know, career path. Yeah. Generally speaking, and now it's like there's this border war with people I've never heard of, you know, and apparently Cisco was in the shit in this border war, you know. Now, I'm not opposed to adding history to a character, but O'Brien was in the ship, and that's been firmly established right. in the Cardassian War. 
you would think if Cisco had also been in the shit in a completely different war that O'Brien would know about it and they'd have some sort of, you know, interpersonal rapport over it, right? Yeah. And it's that's why it just smacks of such a retcon. All right, anyway, uh, we've got the we're, you know, we're 19 minutes in and they're doing this basically who's the final Cylon uh, story, you know, with the Cylon detector or right. rather the changeling detector. And we're paying off the, you know, Julian Bashir stuff. So did you take it that uh, Bashir was a changeling? Well, I guess it has to be because he said he didn't remember being in the Jeffries tube. He's going right, to say that right, right now. Right, that, that the other Bashir was a changeling. And I, I remember yeah. thinking that's where my brain went right away. That it was a... That it was yeah, a yeah. Well, so it's interesting... Okay, spoiler alert, everybody. The ambassador was the changeling all along. It's interesting that somehow... Like, maybe he was supposed to be sleeping or something. Like, he could disappear and become Bashir. And then turn back into... Um, yeah. The ambassador. How do you like that effect? It's an interesting... Uh, shape that knocked people over it was good for what it was it was good for the time well I, I appreciate the creativity of like that's just sort of like a move that a changeling would make right you know? right so now we have the runaway ship uh plot that begins so the changeling as you said kevin has taken control of the ship and they're careening towards zenkethi space to start a war where the Zenkethi, we don't know. Would a war be bad? Who's to say? Uh, but the basic tension is good. Yeah. I mean, we, we've done episodes like this before, but it doesn't feel like a retread, like, uh, you know, Conundrum, or um, trying to think, uh, any, any number of the Romulan episodes where it feels like the ship is being manipulated into precipitating a conflict it's seeking to avoid. It's good tension, because if nothing else, with the ex <laughs> we can't help ourselves, with the exception of, of a few particular entries into the Star Trek canon, these are not warmongering people. They, they seek to avoid conflict, so forcing them unwillingly to precipitate conflict is dramatically Kevin, interesting. I beg to differ with you. Those two things are not entries in Star Trek canon. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and to their credit, to, the, to their very minimal credit, they established that themselves <laughs> on screen, that they are okay. not. Here's the question I have. I like this scene. It's well shot. The small table is claustrophobic. It's very tense. It's very submarine-like. And that's, that's a motif that has served Star Trek well time and time again. Does the lack of a dedicated conference room on the Defiant bother you? Or does it make sense, given the space limitations that they've established when they introduced it no i think it makes sense completely you know like they've got these very spartan quarters um no i'm into it i like okay. it i you know this ship is not a ship of exploration a ship of exploration would require you know dedicated conference room space you know for meetings and powerpoint presentations and you know Stuff like that. Lord, I hope we've evolved beyond PowerPoint in the 24th century. <laughs> More than I wish for the end of poverty or warfare, I wish for the end of PowerPoint. Um, 
Okay, what do we think about this introduction into the... I, I, I always get nervous when writers introduce an ability for an established character. Like, mind melds are fine. The ability to mind meld through a wall? Okay, I guess. It, it just... It feels like we, we've never established that changelings are what they appear to be to censors until now. Yeah, that really kind of bugs me from a science perspective. You know, it's like... I, I don't understand how thinking about something can give you a fundamental understanding of its atomic structure. Like, maybe if they'd established that anything a changeling has touched you know, or absorbed a part of. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like... Right, or, it's, or, or make it like an actual, like, chameleon effect where the, the changeling can emit... sensors. Right, yeah. like, it, it can disguise... It, it, like, it's not... Because then we get into, like, this metaphysical thing, like, well, is it actually a rock at that point? Yeah, well, and Yeah, if fundamentally it's indistinguishable, then it is a rock. You you know all the people being locked in the small room with the other two people are like, if one of these fuckers is the changeling, I'm going to be so angry, you know? <laughs> uh, every time I see this, I can only think of uh, of Clue when, when they suggest they split up. It's like, well, what if one of us is the murderer? Then we'll know who the murderer is. <laughs> I, I'm thinking there's a bunch of orgies going on. Well, small rooms, you know, no way to pass the time. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's the future. Was that shot supposed to be the security guard was a changeling and that's when Bashir gets replaced? I think it's just supposed to be a generic tension increaser. Okay. okay. So now here's the other. Uh, in the history of my Peach Bowl, no changeling has harmed another. Kevin, was that mentioned prior to this? Yes, I believe it was. Um, it I was mentioned when they were in the great, close to the Great Link or something. Yeah, when, when they said, we won't stop you because no changeling has ever harmed another. Okay, you're right. Yeah. I did think that was a little bit telegraphy. Like, we have a conversation about how he doesn't fire weapons, doesn't take lives, and he's a <laughs> member of a species that doesn't harm other members of their species. It's like... Gee, well, wonder... and once we get to the engine room, they're like, "This thing's overheating like nobody's business." It's you know, sort of, it's very Chekhov's gun, you know. Right. It's like, okay, I can see the elements of the plot coming together here. I mean, it's not bad, but it's kind of like, well, we know where that's going. I always wonder why the changeling didn't just kill her. I don't know. That's a good question. Because she's a main cast member. Yeah, uh, well, she has a last name. And they've got 47, 46 other people that you know, he could have killed. That's a pretty nifty setup of screens. Yeah. That little warp bubble looks like the warp bubble from where no one has gone before, which I appreciate. Yeah, definitely into that. Yeah, you know, again, none of the other 45 people on the ship can assist Chief O'Brien. Right. Like, are, they, are they all, like, random security people? Right. <laughs> like, there, there must be more people with technical know-how on this station. Sorry, on this ship. Yeah. I, I just don't know how much I'm, I want to be bothered by the fact that 
it is the Zenkethi, that we know nothing about the Zenkethi. Would, do you think this would be better if it were the Romulans or the Klingons or Cardassian. Cardassians or yeah I, like it's kind of a basic Cold War plot you know yeah it's like you know the American sub is careening into Soviet territory or vice versa right you know? right and you know the ethical dilemma for the captain is do I sacrifice myself to save the world? because we could plunge into a global war, right? But if you say, <laughs> if you tell the same story and you make up a country, you know, like it, doesn't have the, yeah, yeah. it doesn't have the same resonance. So here's our suspicious bullion. <laughs> we never see again, but he gets, he gets pretty, uh, pretty uptight uh, in, a, in a coming scene. In fact, I have to say, when I think about Bullions, they had Katana Rex, who was extremely suspicious, you know, for, for good reason. You know, there were, you know, slugs invading Starfleet officers, but whatever. Yeah. But then on Voyager, they have a, a, a Bullion, who is also kind of, like, leery and, you know... So I guess I, I'm getting the feeling that the Bullions are just a suspicious people by nature. Well, except for Mott and Shell, who are all bubbly. <clears throat> well, no, Shell, Shell is the one in Voyager who... he He's outgoing, but he's kind of... He's flaky, you know? That's true. Hmm. Yeah, Mott is pretty okay. He's like the affable Bullion. So that looks like it's a use of a mat with an optical effect because you know i thought it was well done i mean i got the sense of distance oh no i'd like those shots I, I think they're it's neat looking yeah this is good dialogue you know it's uh kind of pseudo-changeling racism. Yeah. It's like, well, you're one of them, so tell me. I gotta wonder why, if the ship is heating up, that they don't remove their jackets. Well, have, they, have we seen Cisco without the, like jacket but the vest dealy yet have we done that i don't think we've done that yet i think it's just i think when other characters seen are... him in just the gray shirt no. that's true well i imagine the gray turtleneck is unforgiving and you know unless you're like really ripped it might not be terribly flattering well they do it in voyager i guess most of that crew is pretty svelte what <laughs> please kate mulgrew busted out the guns every chance she got she that woman hit the gym So, you know, a lot of these scenes, you know, they are building tension, but they do run a little long. Yeah, I think we I think we could have done with one less. But I think it's ending here. Like, at this point, the the tempo changes, and we, this is, we get to the blood tests and, and whatnot. 
So I guess we have a redshirt situation here. Yeah. So that's neat, shooting down the shaft. On such a small ship, I just gotta wonder where all these Jeffrey's tubes go, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a, your basic alien plot, too. Mm -hmm. you know, like the movie Alien. Yeah. And here's your, you know, showdown, who's the enemy. It's good stuff. Yeah. We're going to get another version of it, you know, coming up for the climax of the episode. I wonder what these numbers mean. I guess it's deck three, room five or something. Hmm. Oh, pulling out two phasers. <laughs> Did Odo really have to clock him? Okay, I, I I like this thing here where like three teams got separated in short order, so it's not the best plan in the world, and I think that's a good touch. How do we feel about the addition of the idea that something separated from a changeling reverts to its liquid form? No, that I like because. You know, that makes a certain amount of pseudoscientific sense, you know? It's like, if a changeling could separate itself and control that piece, it could, like, turn into two little dudes who would, you know, beat you up or something. Okay, and uh, Odo says it like he's revealing something for the first time. Isn't this something he would know and that others would know? Well, I figure that Dr. Bashir would know it for sure. Some Someone like Dr. Mora would know it. Um, but maybe it's something that he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't disclose things about himself all the time. Okay. Okay. So now here's another repetitive scene. You know, we had a repetitive scene of the joke. This is a repetitive scene of the, you know, test. Yeah. How many tests of people do we need? You know? So I, I, I do like that. The, I, I like that blue blood. Yeah. Here's so, my thing. We get up Starfleet. And the Klingons in particular get uppity about blood testing over the next few years. <laughs> the first time we used this test, it failed. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I didn't like the the palming of the, <sighs> the test tube. Number one, why is it a test tube? And I know from looking at these test tubes that they just got these from a hospital because I've seen yeah. test tubes from my mom that look identical. Yeah, yeah. And maybe they haven't improved on it in all those years. Yeah, they're, they're the vacuum evacuated, filled by your own blood pressure, terrifying to look at while it's doing it. Um, yeah, it never bothered me. I guess that's what happens when your mom draws your blood all the time. <laughs> I was never squeamish about it. Just so the internet knows, she's a you know licensed phlebotomist, so she would just do our blood work at home. <laughs> And here, yeah, yeah it, it's a little obvious. They made it too obvious for the. Uh... Well, like everybody's so paranoid, but they don't see this. That's a good effect, though. The. Uh, the. Oh yeah, that looks pretty decent. I agree.
this changeling's pretty versatile. He knows how to use all these solid medical implements. Well, I assume he did his homework. I guess. Well, that's just good timing on the part of the doctor. So, do they have a brig on this ship? I assume these were just crew quarters with force fields. Which does yeah. raise the question, why are there force field permitters around all the crew quarters? Yeah, you know. Some people are into that kind of thing. And we are about to experience another tension trope in Star Trek. Oh, the, uh, the two-officer confirmation process? Yeah, for self-destruct. I, I kind of feel like they went back to the self-destruct well a little too often. And again, because it's the Zankethi, I think it robs the self-destruct trope of a bit of its gravitas. But had, they, had they just said Romulan... Well, because we would we would agree, like we would we would believe and understand based on having seen prior stories that it would be devastating. I mean, all of TNG has been about brinksmanship with the Romulans trying to avoid war, right? Right. And we've seen the Romulans several times now in Deep Space Nine. And it doesn't it just make more sense? That so you know, spoiler alert, the overall Dominion plot here is they want to involve the Federation in a war that will, you know, like deplete its resources or occupy them or just destabilize the, the quadrant, right? Right. But it's with someone we've never heard of. And if we've never heard of them, how bad could it be? You know? Right? Yeah. It's like it, if it was a border war, it doesn't sound like it was a serious deal. We didn't hear about it for any of the years in you know TNG. They never mentioned it. You know, it, it's like they already did it once with the Cardassians, and it was okay that they did it with the Cardassians because number one, they showed us the Cardassians, and number two, they told stories about the effects of it on people. You know, specifically O'Brien, but also O'Brien's old captain. You know, like. And then they, you know, spun it out with, you know, the Bajor and the Maquis stuff. So do you see what I'm saying? It's like you can call anything a retcon if it's introducing something to, you know, the mythos. But it's not a bad retcon if you do it well, if, right. you, if you flesh it out. This is not fleshed out. And so it just, it feels hollow. Yeah, I get, I get that. So I'm, <laughs> I know I sound like I'm just bagging on this episode nonstop. The episode in a vacuum is entertaining. You know, it's reasonably sound structurally. It's got, you know, pretty good, you know, acting and, and all. You know, there's a, a fair amount of good stuff going on. But it just, there's something fundamental to me that drags it down a little bit. All right, here's the Chekhov's gun. This room's going to heat up real fast. So give the warp core a wide berth. 
It's like, okay, I wonder if we'll, we'll pay off on that. I like how they show um, the already morphed Odo with his legs not at their normal length. You know, it's like you can already see his face, but his legs are still short. Yeah. I like that. And so here's our second, uh, you know, standoff. There's just a lot of repetition in scenes here. This is the third thing that we've seen repeated. So here's a nice optical, which looks pretty good, I have to say. Yeah. You know, panning across and showing both of them. I do believe the second, the first Odo was the uh, optical effect, and the second Odo was on set. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, you can see the shadow off the foot. doesn't look very good. See, is there a shuttle bay, or is it just like a chute? Um, I think the one, one or two times you get to see it, it like drops out of a out of the bottom. See, I, I feel like it should be a chute. I mean, I'm not saying you can't call, see this shadow on the the bottom left. Hmm. That was quite a morphing effect. That was good. Yeah. Uh, kind of creepy. Yeah. Like, morphing into the guy. You know, that makeup, we've gotten used to it on Odo, but when it's on someone else, it is creepy. Yeah. It, it, it just really hits that uncanny valley, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it's still obviously Lawrence Pressman, but it's weird. These morphing effects are just so-so. You know, sort of like battle of morphing. Well, it, it curiously stops right at the turtleneck of the of the uniform, and you know. <laughs> well, which indicates that he's wearing a green uh, right. shirt. But it, you know, there are some really nice transitions. You know, so it's not all bad. And here's the payoff. You know, I take back what I said. This is a good set. It, it looks good from a lot of angles. There's a lot of stuff. Well, I think the sort of uh, dome-like warp core really helps that, you know, because it gives you a familiar reference point in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, I like... This makeup is a callback to... Right, the I was, was going to say to um, Dai's cast, yeah. And I like the uh, the changeling death here into the black ashes. They they keep that. The the next time a changeling dies, I think in the ship, they they do that again. As the yeah. Well, I think that little disintegration of the ashes is a computer effect too, and that looked pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, they fixed that problem. <laughs> Did the computer even ask? <laughs> yes, I agree fully, wholeheartedly. A simple yes would have sufficed, number one. 
I mean, okay, so your question about the uh, appearing like a rock. If a changeling could so perfectly replicate something, couldn't the changeling replicate Cisco and abort self-destruct and then replicate Kira and abort self-destruct? Like, if the rock can fool sensors, shouldn't the voice print yeah. of Cisco or Kira also fool sensors? Hell, Data can apparently fool the voice print on the sensors. Well, yeah. You know, so it just... It, you're right. It's a, it's a power too far. Uh, they, I think they just needed to pitch it a little less. All he had to say was, if you scan him as a rock, he can... Like, maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't scan a rock, but you might not notice that it was a rock. It would take you a long time to figure out that it's right. not you know, something. So here's the hook line, you're too late, we're everywhere. Which is a bit reminiscent of uh, Conspiracy's ending Yeah. in TNG. You know, sort of a somber note to end something on. And like you say, you know, it's not a cliffhanger finale. It's it's a finale that portends things to come. Uh, kind of like last season. Yeah, which I'm fine with. I think... Uh, well, I actually, I preferred that they... You know, I'm willing to admit that TNG has faults, and I think one of their faults was trying to replicate the success of the best of both worlds. Yeah. You know? And some of their cliffhangers, uh, Descent springs to mind, Time Zero, which I do like, but both of those spring to mind as, you know, season enders that it's like, yeah, you know, you're just not succeeding. Well, for Redemption, Time Zero, and Descent, the question is, is Worf gone, is Data gone, and is Data gone again? And the answer we know is no. Yeah. Like, I believe there was enough talk at the time that you could believe, at least superficially, that Patrick Stewart might actually be leaving the series. Like, just enough to give it a little more tooth. And so something like uh, Jem'Hadar and now Adversary just tells us what the next season will be about. And and what I, th I think the success in the writing of the episode is how you know, how easy it was for everyone to freak the fuck out when, when you know, the person you trust might not be who they say they are. Everyone yeah, I mean, that's a it. basic story idea that's going to be revisited to very good effect um, in future seasons. You know, sort of this paranoid element. And that's the whole point of having a changeling in a sci-fi story, you know. It really is the whole point. Right. Because you know what? Quite frankly, it's not that interesting to have, you know, oh, I can be an eagle. Oh, I can be a rock. It's like, yeah, I don't fucking care. <laughs> you know, that, does, that doesn't inspire me or make me afraid or anything. The whole point of having a changeling in a sci-fi story is to have people impersonate other people. So they've kind of finally gotten to the point with the changelings it only took three seasons you know uh i mean i guess they did it in uh the dias cast you know with impersonating the romulans so yeah. 
they got to the point there. So something, uh, the one change I wish they had made was not using Lawrence Pressman as uh, the other uh, changeling. Because, because here's the thing, and it's, it's one plot element I always wish they had explored at least temporarily. Um, the, the focus was always, um, are you or are you not a changeling? We know Odo's a changeling. How do we know he's our Odo? Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, given he just he was just impersonated, and yeah. I can't imagine any test you could devise, given that both of them knew what Chief O'Brien had for lunch a month ago. I mean, that that's pretty detailed. So I would have liked one episode where there was like, like at some point you got to let it go because you could drive yourself mad. Like either Odo is who he says he is or he's not, and there's no way for me to know. So if I don't stop thinking about it, I'll just never sleep again. But yeah. I, I I think that would have been. Uh, they telegraphed that our Odo was our Odo by having the by having Lawrence Pressman play the dying changeling, and I think it it would have been more complicated green screening to have Rene Abajonwa play both changelings, but it would have been a fun moment, like a question yeah. of which which Odo did we end up with? No, I agree. Um, you know, it's it's a big rabbit hole to go down, you know, and it's a rabbit hole that's swallowed. Uh, Battlestar Galactica Um, you know so it's a tricky tricky set of parameters to navigate as far as storytelling goes because like you say it can just become so unsettling and confusing that the viewer is just like you you know I can't take this anymore and you know if you do reveal some it's like, oh well, these people were bad all the whole along. You know, it's like, no, they weren't. They just weren't. You know, so you have to really do it carefully. Right. You, know, you, you have to have a really careful plan to tell stories like that. And Ron Moore has lots of lots of fine attributes, but having come up with a plan for Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> as far as its end game went, was not one of them. Hmm. Um, okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, I've mentioned some of my criticisms. So for me, the writing is a mixed bag. I think, you know, overall the plot is enjoyable. It is a fun episode to watch generally. There are just things that nag at me Yeah. basically every five minutes. Like there's, there's a, a pretty big thing that nags at me. Um, but the big thing that nags at me through the whole episode is the, Zenkethi thing you know it, it's such a MacGuffin and writers think they're being cute when they do that you know it's like haha you know I'm coming up with a story where I don't have to actually do that you know and it's 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 driving the plot and it doesn't really matter what it is it's like well no actually it does it does really matter <laughs> you know so it, it strikes me as kind of writerly to do yeah. that yeah I mean, that being said, uh, I do like this episode. I think it's because in the four walls of the episode, the tension is good, the conflict is good. I bought everyone's reactions, if not the setup as much. So I can forgive a lot because it is just a, you know, it's a tense 40 minutes of television. Yeah, it's crisply written, you know. Uh, there are a few it things that are written. I'll take this with a fake Alien of the Week and actual tension then calling it the Romulans and it's suffering from the doldrums or inserting a Jake Nog B plot, you know, like there's, 
there's an energy to this one that covers a multitude of sins for me. I was quite pleased that there was no B plot. Um, you know, and in fact, I, I think most of the episodes that have gotten really high ratings have either had a minimal or no B plot at all, which is really saying something about Deep Space Nine so far. Um, well, the, the stories that we tend to like in Deep Space Nine tend to require the extra 10 minutes. They're, they're uh, you know, mushier, darker, more complicated, more complicated people. And, you know, like, it actually requires an extra five minutes of exposition or transition. Well, and so. I, I think the reason we like them is because they spent that five or 10 minutes, you know, actually fleshing out the story. Um, okay. Uh, Acting-wise, I don't think there's really any... Yeah, uh, I, don't have, I don't have any complaints. Um we, Noth- nothing was like a soaring Lawrence Olivier performance, but uh, you know it was all quite good. Yeah, um, we've we, we've criticized Avery Brooks a few times uh, in the last season. Uh, that certainly nothing to do so here. He he was terse, and uh, I he was very good talking about seeing Cassidy. I, if nothing else, I always like uh, one of the things that bothered me about. Uh, the Tom and Bolano relationship execution, at least in the early part of the series, was the writers tend to forget about it for large stretches. It would like go several episodes on like a casual background mention that they were dating. So mm-hmm. I like little touches like, oh yes, that person you met last episode is still around, and I will see her when she is back. Like just little things like that are nice for continuity. They're nice for the actors. And seeing Cisco talk about taking her to the World Series was actually very sweet. Yeah, no. I- I've never felt that Avery Brooks was bad in sort of emotionally, well, let's say uh, positive emotionally driven scenes. He's always been excellent with Jake. You know, he's excellent in romance. It's just in, it's like when they're asking him to play evil or something or or, uh, aggressive, it just goes way off the rails almost instantly every time (laughs) you know not every time but almost every time um and there was none of that here you know this is a quieter more tense uh you know people talk in hushed tones you know they're they're kind of breathless they're uh it's got some of that sort of submarine drama yeah and and you know from from star trek to from from star trek from wrath of khan to uh balance of terror like the submarine thing serve Star Trek very well and it's probably and not surprising given the strong naval associations but yeah like g- give me a bunch of people trapped in a small space who won't talk very loudly I'll be happy because no lens flare no shaky cam and it's actually not painful to listen to yeah yeah um you know I thought Rene Abergenois was pretty decent uh you know it's too bad Quark was relegated to a cameo but I guess there really was no realistic way to get him on the ship. Um, and the same with Jake. Uh, yeah. There was no Nog and no uh, Rom in this episode. Um, I found Nana Visitor kind of meh this episode. Um, actually, I take that back. I, th- I think she was decent. I mean, she, she was put into situations where she just had to be a bit angry, you know, or a bit um, terse and yeah. abrupt. Uh, and it, it 
it created unpleasant echoes of the past, but it wasn't the past. This is a better version of it. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like lighting my fire, but it's solid, good performance. Uh, production values. I thought the oh, camera yeah. and lighting work was very good. Everything felt claustrophobic, but appropriately and interestingly so. Like, everything moved well, the shots down the various Jeffrey's tubes were. Yeah, I, I really liked seeing more of the Defiant. You know, like an, like an episode like uh, Starship Mine or Remember Me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is, a, it's a bottle type show. And I like a bottle show if it shows me lots of interesting places in a ship. Which actually kind of belies the point of a bottle show, of course, because you're creating new sets. But Well, even if um, you show me the old sets in an interesting way or use them well, which I think yeah. they did. Well, and so, I, yeah, I agree that they did. Uh, there were some pretty decent morphing effects. Uh, average to slightly above average morphing effects. Um, you know, there was... The split-screen stuff looked good until you really looked for, at the details. You know, the lighting was decent, but they did not animate a good shadow uh, off of Odo number one. Um, you know, so to me, the, the production values were, were average. Two above average. Um, above average as far as sets go, average as far as opticals. So in total, I, I think this is a four. I think there's a, there's a tone and an energy that the episode very much achieves. Obviously, it's not a five because of the problems we've identified. But in terms of like a season finale, I really felt like I did in Jem'Hadar. I felt like, okay, the show has direction and momentum and a thought about what they're doing next season, and I would like to see it. Uh, well, I think that's a solid rating. I, you know, I'm not going to say you're wrong, uh, but I will give it a three myself. Um, for much the reasons that I, you know, yeah. I, I've talked about, like there, there were things that just bothered me as being a little bit repetitive within the episode, and then the whole Zenkethi thing. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what a non-Star Trek fan would think watching this. Like, I think they would respond to the tension and be like, "Oh, cool, this is a good tense show," you know. Like, yeah. th this could be fun. I'm interested in watching it, you know? And so I agree that it works on that level. But then what if they were like, oh, gee, I wonder who these Zankethi are, you know? And they look it up on Memory Alpha, and they're like, oh, so that wasn't anything. Like, I feel like that person would be disappointed. And I feel like I'm disappointed, you know? Um, I... I think my analogy to the, you know, U.S. Soviet type story is a good one. No, you know, yeah, yeah. If it were the U.S. and the Redonia. You know, Zimbabweans <laughs> or something, it just wouldn't be as good a story, you know. So, you know, I appreciate that the writers think they're being clever, but what they're doing is undercutting some of the tension in an episode that's built on tension. Um, which is not to say that within the mechanics of the plot, the tension is not there. It is. Uh, but I, I think I think it's undercut enough to make it solidly average. You know, 
this isn't one that you know it I feel like part of the the plot was intended to get to the whole harming of another changeling thing mm -hmm. but there are really no consequences in this episode so you can't really say that this episode did a lot with it mm. it just introduced the plot point which will be revisited in much better stuff yeah you know? i mean so, honestly i would have been fine had they done anything to tie together like you know maybe instead of like you know your soviet anal soviet union analogy is good but you know there are places that would have impacted the soviet union without it being a direct attack on the Soviet Union, like, had it been North Korea, like, they could have said something like, the Zenkethi are crazy, tiny, not terribly powerful themselves, but because of the politics, maybe they're allied with the Romulans, like, I would have, like, had they tried to tie it up a little, maybe that would have solved the problem. Huh, I agree with that, I think that could have helped, you know, it might pull the Romulans into a broader war, sure, yeah, like, just a line or two of dialogue, but the line we got was that apparently Cisco has these old, you know, war wounds, from his, you know, fantastic struggle with the Zenkethi. It's like, oh, come on. You know, it's been three seasons, and this has been mentioned never right. until now. It's like, bullshit. You know, I just call bullshit. You know, this is retconning at its, you know, at its height. In the bad way. You know, yeah. I'm not, the, I'm not the kind of nerd. It's like everything is a retcon at some point. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I get that. Uh, you know, this is just the bad kind. This is the kind that has no roots and is not followed up and doesn't serve the story. And introduces little elements that call things into question. You know, it's it's the sort of baldly inconsistent retcon. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I think it's a three. Yeah. A three is not bad. A three is a good show. This was a good show. Yeah. It's just not a great show. It's not even a very good show, in my opinion. You know, it sounds like you think it's a pretty good to very good show. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there, there's a momentum that I always enjoy watching. Okay. Well, so speaking of that, uh, let's just talk about the series as a whole now. Um, I would say season three, the first, the front half of season three was marked by a slightly better version of the ups and downs we got in season two. I think the highs were higher, the lows were not quite as low, but there was that sense of good episode, boring episode, good episode, boring episode. And then there was the watershed moment of Improbable Cause Dies cast where they figured out what they were doing and did it full-throated. Yeah. Like, just looking back over our scores, I think it was 8, 8, 7, 6, 7, 5, 7, like... like I, the, the lowest thing in there was your two for facets, and that was it. Like, from that moment on, this was just good and consistently so. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. You know, I think a lot of people think about season, season three as kind of like TNG season three. You know, it's like, oh, this is when the show grew the beard, right? Uh, I don't think they're quite right, you know? I agree with you that there's this much starker, um, you know, break in terms of storytelling style. And I have to wonder if some of the lesser episodes after that break were just already in the hopper. Um, well, I was, I was thinking about it. Um, it was Life Support, I think, was the last episode to air before Voyager premiered. 
and we talked about this before that Michael Piller or Rick Berman, I forget who, had definitely, had definitely stepped back from Deep Space Nine, and this became much more Ron Moore and Iris Stephen Bear's child. Um, there, there's something to be said for letting the creative people you hired do the job for which you hired them. And may, maybe once there wasn't someone in the highest position of the day-to-day running of the show steeped in TNG storytelling, that the show got a little more latitude and it came into its own. Because it, Voyager, I believe, is totally much similar to Next Generation in terms of how it breaks a story, how it sets up a story. Like, there's a sense of, we're going to this new place, and there's a problem, and we like it. Oh, but now we don't like it. There's a problem. Oh, we're going to fix the problem, because we're Starfleet, and that's what we do. That yeah. It's a very TNG-style storytelling. So once everyone who did TNG, except for Ron Moore, left to go do Voyager, Deep Space Nine, if nothing else, good or bad, it sort of solidifies its own style of storytelling. Like, we stopped seeing B stories. We stopped getting, like, you know, does this make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. It became much more Deep Space Nine than it had been, you know. Um, I just think it, it needs to be said that season three is not, like, a good season. You know, it's not like, oh, finally, it got good. It's like, no, it was still pretty uneven. It was better, but, it, I mean, there were some lows, you know, uh, and there were some extended sort of boring stretches. Um, but they did finally get their act together in season three, you know, and I agree completely that, you know, especially really all of the momentum is coming off of uh, Improbable Cause and the Dias cast, you know. It's like if you were giving someone a, a watch list yeah, of exactly. stuff to watch, yeah. you know, you could just, you know, skip from there to the adversary. Well, I just you remember, know? yeah, when I, when I watched those two episodes the first time, I remember being like slack jawed at several points. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe they did that. Oh, and they did that, too. 150 ships. There's never been 150 ships anywhere in Star Trek. Like, just the entire thing just smacked of doing something different and bigger and more complicated and it tied in the stuff from the defiant and like it was just i was compelled the entire two weeks and that was fun and it was better <laughs> like yeah yeah uh i think i must have fallen away from the show before that mm -hmm. um you know when i was in college i i didn't have as much time because <clears throat> um, i agree if if i had watched it through there you know i would have been more compelled to keep watching uh through the end you know as opposed to just waiting until it was all done and then watching it you know several years later um so there, there definitely is you know a pickup in season three you know the creative staff uh you know the voices that become prominent in what people consider as sort of the greatness of deep space nine finally you know sort of take the helm. Yeah, I mean, I mean what, whatever problems you may have with the sort of crassness of introducing war for the somewhat distraction of the Klingon war arc as a subset of the Dominion plot, those ep the, the arc itself is fun. It's, there is energy and momentum and there's stuff there that is actually enjoyable to watch. So yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah. see, I never had a problem with Worf being on the show. I... I mean, of course, initially, I, I don't think you can...
possibly think about it without being like, oh, wow, is this going to be a stunt? Yeah. But it became clear that it was not a stunt. Yeah, you know, and, and I will say... It became say, clear that they were actually characterizing Worf as opposed to, you know, having him be like, well, when I was on the Enterprise, we did this. You know, like, or, <laughs> like it, it wasn't like putting a kid in a family show. So it's not Cousin Oliver. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I'll say, I think Worf is the most... Of, of the TNG characters, Worf's a good choice for Deep Space Nine because he embodies the conflict of... Starfleet versus non-Starfleet ethical systems like that. That's great. He's he, and, and they find that in, in various episodes. Like that's fun. Like how does Worf solve this problem? Like that's interesting. So we're jumping ahead, but I, I am optimistic about season four even more so than I was about season three. At the end of this, like this see the end of the season made me feel better going forward than the end of last season did. And the end of last season two, Jemadar was a great episode, and it was. Yeah. But the. Season three as a whole, in, in certainly improbable cause forward, it makes you think, oh, they have finally caught the ball, and now they're running with it. Well, even the one-shot episodes were generally better. You know, something like Explorers right. or, uh, I mean, Facets notwithstanding, because I, I did not like that episode. Um, I mean, let's look at some of these episodes. Uh you know, we've got Chicago. Family Business, which was fun. Shakar, which Shikar, was good. They managed to, to redo a Bajoran politic episode in a way that didn't make you want to... I mean, I was okay with it. I think I gave that a three. But still, like, Shakar is, is a good episode. It has energy and momentum and life. Yeah, so really, with the exception of Facets, which, you know, you thought was okay... Um, it's a it's a pretty strong you know one two yeah. three four five six you know seven or eight episode stretch to end the season. Yeah. It's kind of like um, if I recall the end of season one of TNG, you know, like there was a lot of you know fluctuation before a certain point, uh, but then I think Rick Berman uh, sort of took the reins of TNG, um, and Roddenberry was. Not kicked upstairs, but, you know, took a bit more of a backseat. And TNG kind of stabilized. Even if it wasn't, like, spectacular shows, they were just much more solid. Right, they stopped, yeah. Um, so I, I kind of feel like that's sort of what happened. Because before that point, I mean, ugh. <laughs> Heart, Heart of Stone, Through the Looking Glass, Past Tense, you know. There's Meridian, I mean... There's just a lot of shit. <laughs> I, I mean, Meridian's flatly unforgivable. Uh, and there are good episodes in there, but there's a lot of shit, you know? Whereas since Improbable Cause, you know, even something like Facets, you know, it, it's not it's not Meridian, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like they, they've, they've found something, and it... It's it's a certain je ne sais quoi. It's a certain you know. It's like we can't quite put our finger on it yet, you know. Uh, but they found a tone. They found a storytelling style. They found things to do with the characters that are finally clicking, you know. And we're not reaching the the, the lofty heights that we will reach. But you know, I agree. It, it, we've we've turned a corner. <laughs> 
you know, we're out of the losing streak, yeah. and we're start we're starting to put some wins together here. Okay, so uh, on that note, um, despite Deep Space Nine building momentum, we're going to wait a little while before getting back to it, um, because we are go. Our next podcast will be Caretaker, the uh, series premiere Voyager, because we're we're going to do. Uh, we did season three of Deep Space Nine, and now we're going to do the first season of Voyager with Ran, which ran at the same time. So yeah, it was a mid-season pickup. Uh, it's a short season. I think it's fifteen episodes. Um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to look at the tonal difference between the two shows um, and well, to I, evaluate them. I, it's, it's, uh, except for when they first aired on TV, on, you know, WGN and UPN in Chicago, I have not watched these shows in production order in real time, where it's like, um, you know, that's what this episode, like, it would... It'll be interesting to see, because re-watching Voyager and Deep Space Nine, you start to think, well, what were they recycling? What was already done? Where was this? Like, like It'll be interesting to see one week's Deep Space Nine aired against one week's Voyager. It, it, or not, obviously not one to one, because we're not airing them that way, but it'll, 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 be, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see them closer together. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, see, that was the, the weird thing, is, you know, Voyager... I was always, you know, hepped up to watch the next episode, even when they were doing Kazan shows. So I'm curious to try to put my finger on why that is, you know, for me. Um, you know, spoiler alert, I think it's the characters, but, you know, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, so a seven for the adversary. I think that's a good rating for it. Um, you know, a solid conclusion to a season that finally sort of writes the ship, as it were. Um, you know, there you have it. <laughs> yep. All right. Have a good night, everyone. We will see yes. you at the next podcast. Indeed.